South African accents are weird. I find that I, I can't place them quite. I have an ear for all the other sort of Anglophone accents. Irish, Scottish, British, Australian, even New Zealand. But I cannot, I always have trouble placing a South African accent. Do you have that problem? Yeah, I, I always think I do, but frankly, I think I have more of a problem with Zimbabwe, but that could be me. Zimbabwe, <laughs> yeah, sort of the same thing. I mean, I'm, th- I'm thinking of famous South Africans, Charlize Theron, but I think she grew up in America, maybe. So she, a lot of these people don't count because they move away. Elon Musk. Yeah, well, I'm thinking more, I remember, especially in sports, Gary yeah. Player, Ernie Els, uh, you know. Yeah very pronounced South African accent. It's very sing-songy, I yes. find. Cliff Drysdale is the one I Cliff thought. Cliff Drysdale, yes. Yeah, the, who, I mean, I don't know him as a player. I know him as the ESPN commentator, but he's a, a well-known South African. So. Absolutely, yeah. No, he's a good example of it. Uh, maybe we can learn more about South African accents in this episode. It's the Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Miss Juliet Brown. So the road to episode 118 begins with Juliet Prouse, the host of episode one, season one of The Muppet Show. Prouse, born September 25th, 1936, in Mumbai, India, actually. Uh, her father was English. Uh, it died when she was three years old, and she moved back to her mother's native South Africa, hence the references to South Africa and the South African accents. Began studying dance at four and ended up working at a club in Paris where she was spotted by a talent scout through whom she landed her first film role in Can Can opposite uh, Frank Sinatra and Shirley MacLaine. Doug, uh, take it away. Tell us what you know, what we need to know, big picture about Juliet Prouse. Well, you just mentioned her first big Hollywood break. Uh, that was, you know, a major motion picture. This is Sinatra. And, and actually Shirley MacLaine at their height. Um, is this the same year as The Apartment? Uh, just, just about. It just about. I think uh, they probably came out back to back. I wouldn't be surprised if The Apartment came out after Can Can, but they were just about the same time. I got through about half of Can Can, and actually I kind of liked it. I'm going to watch the rest of it, I think. Oh. Uh, I, I really like Shirley MacLaine in that period well, she, she, she was great yeah. and you know plus, plus you know, louis jordan is in the movie and uh, chevalier i mean it's it's very very parisian yeah about the follies berger and and that right. famous club right so okay sorry so i, I interrupted you go go ahead what else do we need to know um, so th- th- this this was her big hollywood break um and she got a lot of good reviews. And in many ways, I think she almost got the best reviews in the, in the cast for the movie. And, uh, you know, there is a famous uh, story uh, involved in the shooting of this involving your, your favorite Soviet uh, premier, Nikita Khrushchev. Nikita Khrushchev. Yeah, he, he was famously, uh, there was a famous visit that he made to the United States in yes, 19... he, in this trip, he went to California. He famously went to Disneyland, right. you know, which was, if you think about it, what could have been more jarring 
you know, well, they wouldn't dis- they wouldn't let him in. Isn't that the story? For security concerns, yeah, yeah they there were concerns, in. but I thought he ultimately did. I think Walt. I read a few strings, but I read a story that he he wanted to go to Disneyland. They wouldn't let him in for security concerns. He went to this dinner later. Well, he went to see uh, the, watch the Can Can being filmed, uh, yeah. which you can elaborate we'll, on. We'll, we'll get into yeah. in a sec. Yeah. But um, and afterwards, Sinatra hosted a, a dinner for him, and he got up in front of the crowd and just started going off about how he hadn't been. Uh, allowed into Disneyland and what were they worried about? Do they have missiles stationed there? Blah, blah, blah. And apparently uh, uh, he was there with his wife who was sitting next to Frank Sinatra. Mrs. Khrushchev or uh, whatever her name was, was sitting next to Sinatra. And Sinatra leaned over to the person on the other side of him and and said to him, uh, uh, tell the broad, tell the old broad, we'll get her into the park later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, but before that, he he went to see he went to see. Yeah, so he went to the I think it was Universal lot mm-hmm. to watch uh, uh, the filming of a real Folly Berger can can number, mm-hmm. you know where you know racy Shirley MacLaine and Juliet Prowse and all their leggy leggy glory mm-hmm. were going to do uh, the a can can number, and apparently. Right before they started uh, rolling, Frank got up to kind of make a little, you know, ring-a-ding kind of a speech to to introduce Khrushchev to what they were doing. <laughs> and it was along the lines of, you know, Mr. Premier, you know, this is a movie that all the world can uh, uh, embrace. It's a, it, it, This is a movie about love. In particular, beautiful girls and the Hepcats who dig those girls. <laughs> <laughs> and then they go into this number and, you know, it, it, it's actually a great dance number, but uh, Nikita was a bit offended. He, he then was complaining bitterly about the immorality of what he had ju- just witnessed mm-hmm. uh, on this movie set. Yeah. So this got a ton of publicity, which I think really probably helped box office for the movie. And so Juliet Prowse really got noticed in this. Um, Frank Sinatra had a uh, variety show on ABC that uh, that time. And so she was invited as a guest several times to appear with Frank and Sammy and the, and the guys. And um, within a year or two, Juliet Prowse and Frank were engaged. Mm-hmm. Briefly, very yes. briefly. One of his, he was, well, what, yeah, he, he sort of, yes, right, exactly. He, he, at that point in his life, could pretty much have whoever he wanted. And, and he wanted did, her. and he, he tended to get engaged with, you know, completely right. not meaning it, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, but somehow women were hoodwinked, you know, a la Lauren Bacall and others. Right. Uh, so, um, well, so, so Ju- go ahead. So, Juliet Prowse, so this, uh, the following year, she did her probably other biggest movie role, uh, one of the Elvis movies, G.I. Blues. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently, she and Elvis had a, had a bit of a fling. Yeah, not bad. Um, Elvis and Sinatra. Yeah, That's well, like the EGOT. I, you're, you're sort of two-thirds. I don't know who yeah, the other people would be. but uh, they Basically, then, if you end up with uh, Dylan, I guess, <laughs> and uh, 
Stubby K. <laughs> I don't know who, 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 who the Mount Rushmore would be yeah. at that point. Right. But, um, and that was sort of the high point for her because then she became more of a Vegas performer, mm-hmm. more of a, she never did Broadway, but she did a lot of national tours of big, big musicals of the 50s and 60s. You know, Pajama Game, uh, Follies later on. She, she did a lot of uh, touring right. um, in, in those kind of shows. She did a short-lived one-year sitcom in 1965-66. I think it was called Mona McCluskey, which I am ashamed to admit I actually remember watching. <laughs> really? I think the, the conceit of the show, Why I Why would think, you be ashamed of that, Doug? Well, it, it, I, I watched anything. I am, su- I am such a child of television right. that, seriously, I watched everything. Yeah. And she was, I think the conceit of the show was she was a showbiz, a successful showbiz entertainer married to a guy in the armed forces. And yet it was almost like a, a bewitched in the sense that like Darren didn't want Samantha to do, you know, the witching stuff at home. Right. Well, her husband in this wanted to live strictly on his army pay. Right. And, you know, really basically not acknowledge that she was a success in show business. Right. Uh, the show didn't last. Let's didn't put it last. that way. Um, and so for really the rest of her career, it was, you know, Vegas, live performing, uh, basically showing off her dancing, which was her calling card. Uh, we mentioned when we were sort of preparing to do this that while the one of the reasons we wanted to do this little project was that the Muppet Show had such an impressive list of guest stars, they did not get off to a fast start. Uh, no. uh, they Prouse and Connie Stevens, we'll talk about next weekend. You know, they were not. I guess I'm interested to know maybe more where were they on the sort of uh, spectrum of the celebrity spectrum in America in 1976? Oh, definitely on, on, on the downhill side. No question. I mean, this just shows the Muppet show, this weird little kids show, I guess the way people probably thought of it at first being done out of England, uh, you're not going to get the A-list people at first, you know, you have to demonstrate what you are. So uh, essentially you just get the names you can get right. for American TV. And, you know, Juliet Prouse was a name, but for a younger person in 1976, I bet you they'd have been hard-pressed to tell you who Juliet Prouse was. Um, her look, uh, this is something that you brought up to me in our discussion about this, um, was reminiscent of an called back to sort of an earlier time and was not really in line with what, what f- female celebrities, the look of female celebrities yeah. in the 1970s. She was very, it was a very old fashioned look, her hair. She was very made up. I thought sort of excessively made up. The hair was kind of in a, not a bouffant, but a mm. up in, in very, the, the way I've always complained that, uh, the, the women at the Oscars look. It's always bothered me that 99% of very beautiful women, they show up at the Oscars and they do their hair in such a way that they look ridiculous yeah. and not like the beautiful women they are. It, you know, when we see them normally in, with their hair, they look great, but for some reason, 
at Oscar night, they, they have to look away. They never looked before or since. That's well, so, a big night. They're showing, they're showing yeah, they, off. But, their... but to my eye, it, it, it never, it doesn't show them off well at all. So my point is, is that by 1976, the 60s had happened and into the 70s, and women had definitely, there was a definite look that women in entertainment were were doing, mm-hmm. and it was much more natural, much longer hair, parted in the middle, just, it was a much more relaxed, less made-up look. Still beautiful looking, but... Um, I think it appealed more to the sensibilities there. So just seeing her on this show, I found it a bit jarring. Like, right. wow, this, this, she, she could have been back in 1962 looking right. like this. One of the things we talked about last week was the then the a theme of this show is the sort of moment in which it was produced. Uh, 1976, roughly, to 1981, roughly. Um and uh, and the, what was happening in the country at that time? One of the things that was happening was, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You lived through this. I was alive, but not thinking about these things. Um, this would have been peak sort of ERA time, wouldn't it? The ERA was a big, big issue in oh, the '70s. Equal oh, rights amendment, was, women's and it rights. It looked like it was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. was on its way to passage. Absolutely, right. sure. And so that sort of. Uh, this has something to do, I think, with with why the the sort of fashion uh, of women at the time changed to something more natural. They weren't as interested. They didn't want to be objects uh, to be stared at or gawked at. They they wanted to be well, comfortable, it, and they thought I think they, they did. I mean, I think that's basically almost simultaneously to the the Muppet Show premiering. That's I think like when a Charlie's Angels showed up on the air. Mm-hmm. Now. Those women were certainly there to be looked at, and they were certainly commented on. And Farrah Fawcett's poster was right. was a huge Best seller seller. in yeah. the '70s, and did you have she one? had a very. Did you have any post? Did you have any posters on your wall? Of- uh, n- not yes, I did, but not <laughs> of, of that. Um, I, I actually, I, I had a very fun poster. I had the whole <laughs> Abbott and Costello "Who's on First routine on a poster. Okay. There was a great conversation starter in my room at college. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, everyone wanted to, no one wanted to be Bud. Everyone wanted to do Lou. It was, uh, and, and to do Lou, you had to be a really good comic and most people weren't. So that was my poster. But even my point about the Charlie's angels, it was a far cry from what Juliet Prowse was looking like, but it was certainly their hair and makeup. They were, supposed to look gorgeous and they did but in a very different way you know the 60s and the 70s were happening and they were reflecting that so right. it was just a, a totally different mindset i think we um, meant yeah uh we mentioned that prouse was a dancer yes. uh, it was said that she had the best legs since Betty, betty grable and that's a whole well, other well i would i would actually say she was second to sid charisse but okay. yes at any Leggy, rate, this, legs that lasted all day long. Yeah, yes. this was a, a common theme uh, in popular culture. As go, you know, again, prior to to the point that I think most women felt comfortable pushing back against this stuff, they were very objectified. 
Um, and that a lot of times played out in this sort of obsession with their legs, um, which started with Betty Grable. And, you know, if you think of like, uh, uh, the, you know, World War II bombers with, uh, with like leggy women uh, painted on the nose as the nose art. That was a big yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, Betty Grable's World War II art was like her turn, her back was to the camera. She right. comes around, gives a come hither look, but it's a full body shot. Mm-hmm. Rita Hayworth and others were more facially uh, important, whereas Betty Grable was more of a full shot where you do see the legs. So, well, one of the reasons Julia Prowse had great legs was because she was an athlete, a dancer. Um, and that's, as as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, that's how she came to the attention of uh, talent scouts and got that first uh, role in Can-Can. Um, and you mentioned that the, the, there's a very, uh, what to me, at least watching it at first, and I'm not a, a, I don't know anything about dancing, but was a very strange um, dance number that she does in the, in this episode of The Muppet Show with uh, these green gazelles and it's sort of a modern, I don't know if it's modern dance, if that would you call it, but you, you it, mentioned. It's, mo- it's more modern it, it, with nods towards ballet, but it's, it's, it would be in the modern jazz. Right. So you mentioned how it, how it in part can be tied into the sort of evolution of dance and musical theater and popular culture at the time. Yeah. Because if you, if you trace the movie musical and probably even the Broadway musical from the thirties into the 50s, into the 60s, the the predominant dancing in the musical in the 30s, like an Astaire Rogers movie, although their duets were, was primarily tap. And, you know, Ginger Rogers was a great tap dancer. Eleanor Powell was a famous tap dancer of the 30s. Ann Miller came along. But then as the movie musical and the Broadway musical started evolving and and got more ambitious. And you see this primarily in the late 40s into the 50s, you could trace it in Gene Kelly's work where the choreography got more and more sophisticated, more and more balletic, more and more modern. and, and you see it in famous numbers, certainly in Singing in the Rain with the Sid Charisse that I mentioned, mm-hmm. the Broadway melody number where, you know, you see her as this siren in, in this sequence. And then it all of a sudden sort of evolves into this dream sequence, very balletic, uh, mm-hmm. American in Paris. So yeah. the dancers then tended to change all of a sudden, you know, a Sid Charisse. Um, a um, a Mitzi Gaynor, um, a Barry Chase, who worked a lot with Fred Astaire on TV in the 50s, you, Leslie Caron, who actually was a ballet dancer uh, in American in Paris. So the, the whole style of dance went more from tap to that. Right. And Juliet Krause, in the number in, we see in The Muppet Show, is very much in, in, in that genre. Mm-hmm. Um, if anybody's one of my favorite movies of all time is White Christmas with Danny Kaye and Bing Crosby. And there's a, a number in there uh, where they make fun of sort of modern dance. The theater, the theater. What happened to the theater? 
especially where dancing is concerned. And it's, you know, they do this sort of mock, they, mocking they, they, of where, dance. where are the tap dancers? Right. So this is what, yes, this is what precisely what Danny Kaye and Irving Berlin were sort of making fun of. Right. What, what she's doing in The Muppet Show. Another thing we see in this opening episode and will be a theme throughout is um, this sort of, uh, backstage, front stage play that's going on where we're seeing what's happening on the stage and we're also seeing what's happening off stage, which is part of, as you have identified in I've, conversations I've had with you and even maybe in the last episode we did, is part of a larger trend in show business to do a show about showbiz, a sort of parody of showbiz. Yeah, inside show business. I mean, part of the reason it, it occurred to me that my favorite sitcom of all time the Dick Van Dyke show was precisely about that. It mirrored Carl Reiner's experience as, as both a writer and performer for Sid Caesar. So showing, you know, Dick Van Dyke as Rob Petrie and his, you know, buddy and Sally in the writer's room, trying to put on this musical variety show every week with this egomaniacal star, Alan Brady played by Al, uh, by Carl Reiner juxtaposed with Rob at home with Mary Tyler Moore as his wife. But this first time of really trying to show backstage inside show business, what television was really like. And the Muppets definitely were doing that here. You know, right. the Kermit is the host, the producer. And if he had hair, he'd be pulling it out with all the backstage problems, just trying to get this show out every week. Right. That, that, that's what it is. And, and we see this. This was a popular theme uh, around this same time. The great SC uh, TV series up in Canada was premiered, the, premiered the day after the Muppet Show premiered. Well, there in you New York. are. And they, this was precisely they were they, their conceit of their show was this small town in America called Mellonville. And there was this station in Mellonville. And we have to program this station. So you see the writers and the, the station manager and the resulting efforts of what they put on the air. But that was like backstage and front stage show business and television. So both right. shows were interestingly enough, were sort of going for the same thing. Another show I thought of was Fernwood tonight. Do you remember yeah. that show with uh, oh, sure. Martin Mull and uh, Fred Willard, Fred Willard. And then it, in a way it, it presages sort of like, the Christopher Guest stuff, like uh, yeah. waiting for sp or Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap, waiting for Guffman. Shows like that where you're sort of making fun of... Um, well, because, think of it this way. I, I, I made the reference before I was such a child of television. You know, the baby boomers, we, we were, you know, the first baby boomers went from, you know, maybe their parents had a radio and you were listening to radio. And then all of a sudden, as the 50s went on, television completely took over your life. Right. So, and there were millions of us. Right. We, we, you know, we, we just kept coming, you know, it was such a population explosion. So by into the seventies, all of us knew television backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. So we knew exactly what they were referencing, what they were making fun of. Right. It, you know, we got the joke. Because yeah. we knew so much about TV. Right. There was nothing more important in our lives. Right. One of the things I thought about was what that means, like why that was such a trend at the time, this sort of looking behind the curtain. Um, you know, right now I'm in the middle of 
this summer I have to do something called um, comprehensive exams, which is where I I basically write a series of papers that prove that I've learned something the last two years in my PhD program. And so I'm reading all of this postmodern philosophy, a lot of which was produced right at this time, like sort of the mid to late 70s into the early 80s. If anybody's familiar with Jean Baudrillard, who was a, mm-hmm. he was a French philosopher, he's best known now for his his sort of theory of, of the simulacra, simulation, simula- simulacra and simulation was his most famous book, was the basis supposedly of, of the Matrix movies. This idea that we're all living in a simulation um, and that we're just bombarded with images and that there is no real anymore. This is very esoteric stuff. Mm-hmm. But it just struck me that maybe at this moment, people, even in the sort of broader culture, were interested in thinking more deeply about media, about what media was doing and how it was presenting certain well, sure. things I mean, to them. 1976, we basically now, we were at the 25-year mark of television being the mass media right. in the country and increasingly around the world. So yeah, you probably were able to get academic studies going about its effects and right. what was really going on. Yeah. Another interesting thing, I bought a book... Um, called Jim Henson and Philosophy, Imagination and the Magic of Mayhem. And there's an article in it by a guy named Christopher, it's an edited volume, so it's a bunch of different authors, uh, by a guy named Christopher Culp. And he talks about, uh, he writes about how the Muppets use the cameo, which is something I hadn't thought about before. If you think about Muppets, the sort of canon of Muppets material, they really use cameos and celebrity cameos a lot i mean in this show they have a a celebrity on every week Mm -hmm. but um even in the movies um like the the he talks about uh, i think it was the muppet great muppet caper which had charles groden in it yes and groden was always sort of winking at the camera like you were aware that he was both playing a character in the movie with the muppets and was also Charles Grodin. There was no like an, a regular movie you might watch where you're you're supposed to forget who the person is and and just be taken in by the character they're playing. Yeah, breaking the fourth wall. Which, yeah, you're breaking and, the fourth wall. I mean, look, if you go back into the '40s, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, those great road pictures they did, they did that all the time. And in 1940s America, it turns out people loved it. They wanted to be in on the joke. Right. You know, like, you know, Bob Hope would make a reference. He would say a a line and Crosby would look at him and he basically would make a reference like, oh, I got to get the writers to get get me a better line than that the next time. That's, you know, they wanted to be inside that world. And and, and it increasingly. This became a knowing wink to the audience and we were all in on it. Yeah. It, It also makes the Muppets more endearing. The, the puppets, the Muppet puppets themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got everyone on the Muppet show is performing on multiple levels, or you've got the celebrity who is both being the celebrity, whom we assume everybody knows who they are as the as the guest mm-hmm. star. And then they're also a character on stage, a character within the show. And it's sort of awkward and weird. I mean, I felt that way about the Prouse episode. There's an awkwardness to it. Uh, like it's yes. a little bit jarring. And then you have the Muppets who are doing the same thing, right? They're, they're both performing on stage 
And then they're breaking this fourth wall down, allowing you backstage to see who they really are. But in their case, it makes them more endearing. Well, because we, we realized maybe these aren't, this isn't the greatest show we're seeing. Right. These guys aren't the best performers. They're doing their best, but maybe you can get a better guy to do a Western sketch than Fozzie. But right. Fozzie is what you got. He, right. you know, he, he's got to go on. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's this knowledge of, well, you know, we, we couldn't go out and get Robert De Niro, Fozzie, so... You're going out there. You, you do this sketch. <laughs> right. And yeah, it's very endearing. It's very endearing. Know. Yes. Um, okay. So we should talk about the show itself a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, and let's begin with, it starts off with one of the Muppets' most recognizable songs, yeah. a skit singing a song that we all, most of us know, yes. called Manamana. Everybody's heard this phenomena. Do, do, well, I'll, do, I'll, I'll take phenomena. I'll, 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 I'll take care of that because yes, this, this, this leads into an amazing. Please, please tell story. us about phenomena and Mr. Irwin Rowitz. Okay, um, I was thrilled. And how you and how you destroyed my the life of your future sister-in-law? sister-in-law. Yeah. Um, first off, this was the very first thing in this very first episode, yes. yeah. and I was thrilled. Because Menomina was a big deal. Now, for all those, Andy started to do it. It's the song that goes something like this. Da 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 da. Menomina. Da 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 I grew up in Queens and I grew up in this neighborhood and um, this was now we're going ahead a few years in the early eighties. I, I met up with the woman who I married and we had grown up together in Queens. We were together from like kindergarten to seventh grade yeah. um, and there are a whole bunch of kids in the neighborhood. And so we meet up again and we, hit it off. And so then I have to meet her family who I had known years ago, but I hadn't seen in years. So I meet her older sister who I remembered as a kid. And we did the whole, Oh, so, Oh, it's so great to see you. Wow. Look at you. So who are you in touch with? Who do you see? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I, I, I'm really close to Gary Rowitz down, you know, who lived, his parents lived down the block from their parents in Fresh Meadows in Queens. And Joni knew them. You see Gary? Oh, my God, I haven't seen him in years. And actually, I haven't seen the Rawitzes in a long time. How are they? I said, well, they're good. You know, they're, they're you know, they're, they're, you know, Erwin Rawitz, he, he makes me laugh all the time. He's a very funny guy. And she goes, you know, thank God for Erwin. I, I, I can't believe how important he turned out to be in my life. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, well, you know, you know, we always knew in the neighborhood he was sort of in the music business, and 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 we think he was he was a songwriter. And I'm going, what are you talking? A songwriter? He goes, yeah, Mr. Rawitz wrote Manamana. <laughs> I said, Joni, Mr. Rawitz didn't write Menomini. Yes, he did. Everyone in the neighborhood knows. And as a matter of fact, 
I've been telling people this for years. I mean, Joni was a singer. She had a very good voice and she was like in downtown bands in the East Village. She used to hang out at CBGB's. So I had this image. She's hanging out at CBGB's with like talking heads, the Ramones, Debbie Harry and Blondie. <laughs> and they're all talking about their songs and everything. And Joni butts in. Well, well, OK, yeah, your songs are pretty good. But I know the guy who wrote Menomino. <laughs> and they're all looking at her like, wait a minute. You know the guy who wrote Menomino? Get out of here. I love Menomino. You know the guy who wrote Menomino? Yeah, he's like my parents' best friend. Lived right down the block. I know the guy who wrote. And like they're all stunned. Oh, my yeah. God, well, the hell with our stuff. She knows Menomino. And I, I, so anyway, I faced Joni, you know, I'm positive Mr. Rowitz did not write <laughs> Menomino. She was crushed. Yeah. I, her life is now a delusion. She just, yeah. her life has no meaning anymore. For years, this was like her big story in life. And, and, and I completely punctured it. I mean, I hate to, I hate to bring this up, but you're no longer married to the woman, uh, her sister. Is it, I, I is know, it possible that this, this was the reason for that, that you, um, you were you were sort of scuttled. You know, I, I I don't like to talk about it much, but I'm sure it was a contributing factor. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I did notice that whenever Joni ran into my friend Gary, she was a little standoffish. Mm. So, you know, it's amazing to think how something like that gets started. Well, you know, it all goes back to like, especially when I don't know what's different now, but when we were kids, I mean. I really couldn't have described to you what my own father did for a living. <laughs> right, right, so yes. how the hell am I supposed to know what your father did for a living? You know? So this Yeah, but there's a big they, distance between that and thinking that they wrote Manama. I don't know. Maybe Joey once saw Mr. Rawitz come back to the apartment where he and he was carrying a couple of record albums that he bought at the store. And in her mind, that meant he's in the music business. I don't know. I thought he was though. Didn't you say he was actually in the... again? I'm I'm a little unclear. No, he he was he he sort of had a vague connection, but no, he was not in the music, and he was not a songwriter. <laughs> and unfortunately, he did not write Menomina, and some fancy Italian guy did. So yes, uh, for the record, it was written by an Italian composer named Piero Umiliani. Um, and it f- appeared first in America on the Red Skelton Show in 1969. Apparently, I couldn't find this on YouTube, but in a skit about the moon landing. Um, so that's that's where it actually came from. Umiliani uh, wrote Emiliani. Excuse, Umiliani, excuse me. Wrote. Well, I, I probably it was a very familiar because I remember watching the Red Skelton Show. So probably we all kind of knew the music, but for some reason the Muppets it became attached to them. I think people just really associate that song with the Muppets because I'm sure they ended up doing it more than this one time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and I'm looking forward to that. No, it's one of their it's one of their most well known bits, at least musical bits. I'd say. Yeah. yeah. So I, I sing it with Bryson. Well, I have we have our own words to it, but but the tune is it was would sing with Bryson all the time. Cool. I have since he was an infant. Yeah, it's a it, and it is a great melody. It, it is. is. Yeah. And Menomina is a wonderful lyric. It is. Right. It's time to LOL to laugh out loud. Doug, um, where was the 
if you could, you can only pick one, but uh, oh, okay. at the point you few. laughed out loud watching this episode I, of The Muppet they Show. They did a Western sketch mm-hmm. in the show. <laughs> yes. Um, where Rolf is the piano player in the Western saloon. And basically Fozzie comes in, you know, the tough guy, John Wayne character. And he basically wants to rob the place. Mm-hmm. And instead of a couple of six guns, he pulls out a couple of full kosher pickles <laughs> out of his holster. Right. And, and the bar goes crazy, making fun of him. And the, the, I think the bartender goes, oh, he's the fastest geichen in the West. <laughs> Which I, I don't know. It really hit me. That so, was a good. I also liked his John Wayne impersonation, but yes, which was god awful, but yeah. but heartfelt. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there were a lot of great pickle jokes in yes. the bit, and but the thing of it was, the pickles were loaded. Right. So yes, they, they, you know, he had the last laugh. Right. So. Uh, for me, there were a couple spots I, I I enjoy in these early episodes. There's a recurring skit where you it's like a dance floor. There are people ballroom dancing. Yeah. And they just kind of do one-liners back and forth. And there's one with it's two, I think it's two pigs dancing. It might even be Miss Piggy. No, no, it was only one. No, it was one pig. Uh, right. Right. That. Miss Piggy, who, by the way, is not yet Miss Piggy. I mean, she no. is. And we we, we see the uh, beginnings a, yeah. of the relationship with Kermit, who calls her honey, and she calls yeah. him my love. In a, great, in a great choral glee club number. It's really yes, the introduction of Miss Piggy in that. Yeah. But, and, but she doesn't sound like the Miss Piggy no, that you and I know. No, the voice is different. But in your bit, yes, there's someone dancing with, with a pig. pig. And she says to the pig, uh, do, you pre- do you prefer Shakespeare to Bacon? Or no, do you prefer Bacon to Shakespeare? And he says, I don't. I prefer anything, anything to Bacon. To yeah. Bacon. Which is, would, I mean, yeah. you know, for a kid, it's not a kid's show. I mean, we've talked about this, but no. like, that's a, no. you know, a, a Francis Bacon, William Shakespeare joke is, is pretty heady stuff. So um, I, right, I, I had to look, goes, I actually had to look it goes to the, the real joke of, you know, a pig and bacon. Yeah, right, it, right, it, right. It, it works on great, many lines. Yeah. It's great. It's a great joke. So. But my LOL was there's a, there's a recurring um, skit, not a skit, but a, a segment in these early shows where Kermit sort of, does a sit down chat with the guest host and he's sitting with uh, um, Juliet Prowse and he admits that he always dreamed of being a dancer, but that he couldn't because you know what they say about frogs. The first thing to go is their legs, <laughs> which made me laugh out loud. That's a great joke. Yeah. yeah. And if you remember the original Muppet movie, um, the whole, the whole thing is based on, Kermit's being chased by a, a frog, a fast food frog legs, uh, you know, a guy who owns a fast food frog legs chain. Um, so that's a recurring joke with the Muppets as well. A good running joke never wears out. That's right. So, so Doug, famously, um, to preview our to preview our next episode, uh, famously, if you want to get into Stanford, you have to write a five word essay, amongst many other things like getting straight A's and a perfect score on the SAT. Um, you have to write a five-word essay about yourself. So every episode, at the end of the episode, to preview the next uh, guest host, I'm going to have you write a five-word ep- uh, essay about uh, the guest host. So um, I think 
it, maybe when you do it for Stanford, you don't actually, they don't actually have to be complete sentences. They can just be five words, but uh, we're going to yeah. try to make them. It's more fun if they have to be complete yeah, sentences. Yeah, you know, I, so, I, I, I agree. For instance, if we were doing one for Juliet Prowse, this week's host, it could be, boy, Khrushchev, not a fan. <laughs> next week is... <laughs> That's good. I like yeah. that. <laughs> so uh, next week, the guest host is Connie Stevens. So can you give us a well, uh, now most Connie Stevens five-word oh, essay? Most of you have no idea who Connie Stevens is. So sort of in a nod to this Juliet Prowse episode and her connection to Frank Sinatra, my five-word essay for Connie Stevens, and I'll leave you hanging, is my crooner is Eddie Fisher. Princess Leia's dad. That's very exciting. Bryson will be excited about that. All right, so next week uh, on Why Do We Always Come Here, Connie Stevens, the guest host, season one, episode two of The Muppet Show. Doug, I'll talk to you then. Okay, take care.